passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. Good morning. My name is Stephen. Uh, as Jordan said, I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Crosswinds, um, and I am so excited and privileged to be able to preach this morning. Um, today is the start of Advent. Uh, we're starting our series into the celebration of the coming of Jesus, God taking on flesh. So as we start our Advent, I do have a confession. I'm not a big fan of starting Christmas too early, okay? Bahambug. So all of you have put up your trees already in the last couple of weeks, started listening to Michael Buble's Christmas album or Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas. I pray for you. So it feels weird to get up this morning, still in February, and say this, but I'm going to. Merry Christmas. This is the start of our Advent series. We're going through the book of Romans. Yes, you heard that right, the book of Romans. And as we go through this, there's this wonderful idea in Romans of this something's coming, which is what Advent is. It's that something is coming. The celebration of Advent is meant to be twofold. The first is Israel was waiting and Jesus came as a baby in first century Israel. And the second is we are now waiting for Jesus to come again. There's this idea of waiting. Something is coming. And this is a huge part of Romans, and we're going to see that unfold over the next few weeks in various ways. This week uh, in Spirit Lake, Pastor Chris is uh, preaching on Romans 1, and he and I are going to trade places, and he'll be here um, next week, and I'll be there. So this week we are going over Romans 2 and part of 3. Don't worry, we're not going to go line by line through all 49 verses. Rather, we're going to read the end of Paul's argument here, and then go back and look what he says leading up to these points. So if you've not already, would you turn in your Bibles to Romans 3 with me? Uh, it's going to be Romans 3, 9 through 20. And as you're doing that, I want to give a little context before we jump in. So the theme for the first two weeks, these first two chapters of Romans, is God's glory and man's sin. And I want to read just Romans 1, 18 for us. We'll have it up on the, the screen. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The idea of Advent here in the first two chapters of Romans, the something that's coming, is the wrath of God. So next week, as I said, Pastor Chris will be here, and he's preaching on the sin, issue of sin within mankind in general. Paul uses the word Gentiles here. And in chapter 2, in the first eight verses of chapter 3, we get this idea of the sin within the Jews, um, or, or really those that consider them the people of God. And he concludes this argument over the last two chapters in Romans 3, 9 through 20. So let's read that together. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers, venom is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So after Paul has made the arguments that those that are far from God are sinners, and he makes these arguments that those sometimes that think they're close to God are also sinners, he concludes with this again, no one is righteous. All men are sinners. We bring nothing to the table. I am not good. You are not good. Right? We've said it's Advent. It's Christmas season. And now you may be wondering, who in the world chose Romans for Advent? I've told you we've been talk- we're going to talk about sin for the next two weeks. You're like, where is the cheer? Where is the, the lively Christmas music? Where's Charlie Brown and the gang? And ruining perfectly good desserts by adding mint to them. I'm sorry, I don't like mint desserts. But it's Christmas. So why do we say Merry Christmas? Merry means cheerful, lively, maybe happy, but happy Christmas sounds awkward. So if Christmas is supposed to be merry, cheerful, and lively, what is Christmas all about? If you listen to Christmas music on the radio, it's because of snow and presents and mistletoe with maybe a hint of baby Jesus and a star in there. So even if we say Christmas is all about Jesus, which it is, God put on flesh and dwells among us, that's awesome. But so what? The thing we celebrate at Christmas is realized later. It's not necessarily in the birth. It's that we have a great need, and that's why God has come. The need is sin. So I said Romans 1.18 is this theme verse for the first two chapters, and I think it really makes sense to set it against the two verses before it, verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the, righteousness, the righteous will live by faith. So we see our sin set against the glory of God. And I think to really understand this, we have to go all the way back to the beginning to creation. And a few weeks ago, Pastor Jordan shared um, from a book called The Garden, the Curtain, the Cross. And I think it illustrates this so well. Right? In the beginning, God created everything. He created the trees, the mountains, the other plants, the platypus, the hippos, all the animals. He creates humans. And in the end, he says, it's all good. Right? It is good because God is good. And then we see that man gets to walk with God. And like I said, that, that book, The Garden, the Curtain, the Cross, shares it was all good. There was nothing bad and no one was sad. It was perfection. God is perfect, and the only way man was able to walk with God was because there was no sin. And then the fall happens. Adam and Eve reject God being in charge. They think they can do it better, and now sin curses everything. Sin curses us. Imagine with me that people are vegetables, okay? It's weird. Just go with me for a second. When you buy a vegetable, or, or maybe you grow it in your own garden, you bring it inside and you, you wash it because it's probably got dirt or pesticides or something on it. You wash it and you put it in your fridge. 
I think sometimes we think of sin in this way. Oh, it's a little bit dirty. We just, we just got to get it off and then it will look all nice again. You know, that deep down, you know, we just, we got to get the bad stuff off and we're pretty good. But the Bible gives us a very different picture. In Genesis 3, as God is giving out curses after the fall, he says this about the, the earth in verses 18 and 19. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So here we see because of sin, the earth itself physically changes. Adam and Eve, who were doing work in the garden, it was labor, but it was easy labor, are now told they're going to toil and it is going to be hard and there are going to be thorns and thistles sprouting up. The earth has literally been changed because of sin. Man has been changed because of sin. We didn't just get dirty. Let's go back to the idea of the vegetable. If you're like me, you sometimes buy things and forget you bought them. So you'd come home, you put it in the drawer, you close the drawer, and after a few weeks, you're opening your fridge and you smell something funny. And you pull open the drawer and the smell's not just funny, the smell actually comes up and slaps you in the face. And you look down and your once brightly colored vegetables are black with something dripping off of them. That is what sin does to us. You can't go back and fix something that's rotting. That is where we stand before God. Not just dirty, but rotten and without hope. This is why we need Advent. This is why we need Jesus. The miracle of Jesus coming to save us. Because it's only God that can restore us from rotten to beautiful once again. So as we've laid the foundation of no one is righteous and salvation one way from God, we can go back and look at chapter 2 and 3. And I want to say this now, and I'm going to remind us of this at the end, as we're talking about sin, today is not supposed to be Stephen beating you up with the, the text we're looking at to make you feel like bad sinners. If anything, I say today, if God uses it to prick your mind, to prick your heart, and you feel the need to repent, that's a good thing. That's God inviting us into deeper fellowship with him. We repent and then celebrate because God is drawing us close. So as we look at this passage, Paul is telling us that there is a sin issue in the church. Not just the Roman church, which Paul is writing to in this letter would have been passed around to the various house churches. But I think that these same attitudes going on in the Roman church are sometimes held by us. You see, the, this, this church in Rome would have been um, Jews and Gentiles, and some of the Gentiles would be converted to Judaism. So you have this spectrum of people. And he's writing this because some of the Jews have this really haughty attitude. And that's what he's addressing. And I think we can suffer from this today. So even though this is written, and we're going to see the word Jews quite a bit, I want to preach it to the church today. So we might not fall into the same mistakes as those who have gone before us but rather we would honor God with all that we are. And like I said, there is so much in chapter 2 and 3 that we could spend months just going over this section. But in this passage, I see four major charges that Paul brings against the Jews and subsequently apply to us. The first is self-righteous judgment, and we see that in Romans 2, 1 through 4, and I'll read that for us. 
Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you really think anyone who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? As we've talked about the idea of sin, I don't think we have a difficult time thinking people are bad, but sometimes accepting I'm bad. We can be really quick to look at other groups, other people, and be like, yeah, they're bad. They're the ones that have a sin problem. Am I really that bad? This is judging. And and I want to preface this slightly that, that all judging is not bad. We're told in Scripture to wisely judge between right and wrong. We're told to encourage each other to do what is right and at times to call each other out for what is wrong. And there's this idea of, of weighing or discerning, right? We discern what is right and wrong. We weigh decisions. I think these are all good words for this. But this is not what Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about more is like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, you see a brother with, with a speck of sawdust in his eye, and you want to go help him remove it, all the while you have a log sticking out of your own eye. What's implying is you got to look at yourself first. You got to take the time to take out the log in your own eye. So Paul is encouraging them to guard against self-righteousness and judgment. We are called to give serious pause before judging others to look inward first. And these, this is what the Jews are not doing here. They were quick to judge others. I, I think we could even be able to do this this morning, right? As we're, we're talking about sin, it'd be easy to be like, I know someone who needs to hear this sermon. I'll send it to him after church. You know, Paul's saying, don't do that. Stop. Think about yourself. Examine your own heart. Start with ourselves. So what can we not judge? We have to take extra care in these. Things that are not explicitly stated in the Bible. We may say, I have a principle based off biblical principles that I live by, but they're not black and white. Honestly, it's, it's November thinking of this. Who you may have voted for is not actually black and white. I know so many Christians that labored in prayer and talking and thinking and saying, God, what do you want me to do? Because I want to honor you. When it comes to TV or movies, it's not always black and white. How we spend our money, All of these things are based on biblical principles. They should be. I mean, the gospel, the Bible affects our entire life. Everything should go back to it. But I can't sit here and judge someone on something that is not black and white. We can also not judge the matter of the heart. I cannot read your mind. You cannot read my mind. I cannot see into your heart. You can't see into my heart. So when someone does something, we're like, they did that because they have a sinful heart. How do we really know? We can't judge their hearts. We can't assume that something is sin outright if there isn't actual sin. 
But Paul isn't just talking about the times we judge. He's, he's talking about an issue of hypocrisy. He says, you're judging people, but you're committing the same sins. You're looking at people and you're going, what? You shouldn't be doing that. That's wrong. All while we do that. Did you hear so-and-so struggles with gossip? Do you hear so-and-so does this? We're, we're judging people, but yet we do the same sins. And I don't know what you're judging for. That's something you've got to reflect on. But Paul says this attitude of judging and still having the same sins is, leads to judgment. Verses 3 and 16 really say, do you think you can escape judgment? Almost like, do you think you can be God's judge on his behalf and he'll thank you for it? No. He actually says what you're doing is you're making deposits into God's wrath. You're storing up judgment for a later time. That you aren't having the heart of God in this. And then verse 4 says, don't mistake God's patience with his approval. Just because we're depositing into God's judgment and we don't see it now, we can be like, well, life is pretty good. I guess God's okay with how I'm acting. It says, don't mistake God's patience with his approval. Repent so that we do not have that wrath. The only escape is humble submission to Jesus. The next charge Paul brings is asking, do you practice what you preach? This is found in 2, 17 through 24. And I want to preface this. I really think after reading this that, that Paul is being sarcastic here. So I'm going to read it with that tone so you get a feel for it. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light to those in darkness— an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. You then, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who, bo- you who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Again, it's an issue of hypocrisy. Now, we all still sin and we're going to be hypocrites at times because we're going to say, hey, we should do this, and sometimes we sin and do this. Paul is addressing this attitude that it is almost finding righteousness in, in teaching but not living it out. You think you're doing this great thing by teaching and proclaiming this. But you're not. We, we like to hang on to our sin or to our idols. I like this quote from Matt Chandler about that. See all of your idols. They're accusations against God. Unfair, undue, unfounded accusations against the creator of the universe. You accuse him of not being good. You accuse him of not being for you. You accuse him of not blessing you. This is why Paul says here in Romans, not only are we accusing God, but Paul says we blaspheme him. You teach or you judge, but you're still the sinner. And when we do that, Paul says that we are, we're supposed to be God's people that glorifies God's name, teaches him to the nations, proclaims his greatness, 
But when we teach one thing and we do something else, we take God's name and we drag it through the mud and then we say to the world, look, isn't he great? And they're like, I don't want that. If this God that you're telling me is okay with you and you're doing all these sins too, I don't know if I want a part in that. We make him look bad. This passage really weighs on me as someone who gets up and teaches. Because if I'm telling you all these things and then I go home and I don't live them, woe is me. Now you might be saying to yourself, well, I don't do those things. Let's look at it again. You must not steal. You must not commit adultery. I don't, I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I for sure don't rob temples. But he says, you who boast in law, do you dishonor God by just breaking the law? Right? It's just the law. Even more so, our hearts break it. Right? We may not steal, but we sure covet. Oh, they have a really nice car. Oh, their family looks so happy on Instagram. You know, Chris Hemsworth, who's the actor that plays Thor, man, I, I wish I had his muscles. I wish I had his hair. Right? We may not steal, but, but we long for things. You must not commit adultery, adultery but we, we lust. Are we looking at things we shouldn't be? Do we dishonor God by breaking any aspect of the law? Because it blasphemes his name. The third charge Paul brings, I had, a, I had a hard time thinking of something to call this, so I went with the sign of righteousness, which is Romans 2, 25 through 26. And it says, Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? So for the Jews, it was being born Jewish. It was, look, I I am a Jew, which means I am the people of God. Therefore, he must think favorably of me. And circumcision was that sign given to them. For us today, it might be a lot of things. Growing up in a Christian home, saying a prayer, being baptized, even attending church. It's not setting your Facebook page to say you're a Christian or sharing a picture of Jesus on Facebook that says, like and share if you love me, but it's really the picture of Obi-Wan Kenobi from Star Wars. It's not any of those things. It's not a name tag I can slap on myself and be like, I'm a Christian. I'm good with God. He's looking for the hearts. And in this section, he even goes on to say, those that we think are bad, the ones we're, we're judging and saying, you don't belong to God, they're going to come to know God, even though they don't have all these signs that we put on them, and their faithfulness is going to judge our faithfulness. And his fourth one is, just give up, be bad, and show God's grace and forgiveness to the world. This is Romans 3, 5 through 8. But if your unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God's unrighteous, 
Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that God may come. Their condemnation is deserved. So as, we, as he's gone through these three points, Paul is anticipating the argument, well, if I can't find righteousness in judging someone, and I can't find it in teaching the law, and I can't slap a name tag on myself, might as well just give up and sin and look, be like, look, world, God forgives me. Isn't he great? And I hope just me saying and reading this sets off alarms in your head. It goes against everything Paul has taught. He's saying, no, do not sin. Seek God's righteousness. Look like him. Because those that are just going to say, give up, let's be bad and show God's forgiveness, don't get it. He says their condemnation is deserved. So right, we're talking about sin in God's people. So the thread we see is God's people still sin. So you might be asking the question, if, if Jesus came to save us from sin, why do we still sin? That's a great question, and I love when you guys ask questions there in my notes. So the first reason that those that think they're God's people still sin, the first one is there are some that aren't actually saved. You may have grown up in church, done the right things, but your heart is not God's. First John says, you are not born again unless there's evidence in your life. And that does not mean the absence of vices. Like, well, I don't steal from work. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't swear that much. There are lots of nice, moral people going to hell. We just saw Paul say morality is not good enough. So a good test for us to ask ourselves is, how do I react to when I sin? Do I'm just like, yeah, God forgives me. Or, you know, at least I do this, so therefore God likes me. No, do we, do we mourn over our sin? Do we know the offense it is to God? Romans 3.10 says, there's no one righteous. I don't bring anything to the table. It is my great fear for the church that so many want to accept Jesus as Savior, but not submit to him as King and Master. And if you don't submit to him as Master and King and Lord, you don't get him as Savior. So have you said, did you just take complete control over my life? Tell me what to do, where to go. Help me to do the really hard things you call, like loving my enemies. Change my heart to make me like you. If you haven't, I invite you to do that today. And let us rejoice with you. Whether you're a student or you've been going to church for 50 years, there's no shame in coming to Jesus. There's no shame. It warrants a party. And at this time, a COVID-approved, safe, prepackaged little Debbie's party. But for real, we should celebrate people coming to know Jesus wherever it's at. The Bible tells us the angels rejoice and so should we. Not look and be like, oh, I, I thought you were a Christian. No, let's rejoice. What about those that are following Jesus? You said, I mourn over my sin, but I, I keep sinning. 
Now we have the idea that as Jesus came, died on the cross, he frees us from the power of sin, but not the presence of sin. So the idea is, I am now free to not be a slave to sin because I am submitting to Jesus as master because we only get one master. It's either sin or Jesus. So I've rejected sin and I want to serve Jesus. But there's still this struggle. Paul talks about it in a lot of his epistles. There's this struggle between flesh and spirit and doing what is right and what is wrong. And we're going to have that struggle. But here are some things, I think, to help you out with it. The first one is we need to understand who God is, right? That that his holiness is so great. That sin isn't like the vegetable just getting a little bit dirty. That sin is like a cancer. It's worse than a cancer. It completely destroys us. It separates us from God. Even as believers, it drives a wedge between us and God. Sin is not just breaking the law or treating others mean. It's anything that goes against God's command. It goes against anything where we don't draw glory to God, both active and passive. It breaks God's heart every time we sin. From a white lie to gossip to adultery to rape to murder, all equally sin before God. They have different consequences and may affect people differently, but they are all equally sin before God. The next one is, I think we see sin as one-time events where I make a wrong decision. But sin is pervasive. I said it's like a cancer. We need to look for patterns for sin that, that, that keeps coming up, that's, that's habitual, and we have to get to the root cause of them. One of the things I had to learn early on in my marriage is that I have control issues. I would get really mad at my wife for moving things of mine like my water bottle. And you can laugh, I was the worst. It's a water bottle. And I would get upset over this, and I would get angry. And I kind of wrote it off as like, oh, it's just, you know, it just happened. Uh, Maybe I get frustrated. But through this process, I came to learn I had these really intense control issues over everything, including where my water bottle was. And it affected so many areas of my life and majorly affected my marriage. And I had to deal with it. I had to understand that my desire for control goes against the reality that God is in control. And it was learning to say, God, you're in control and I'm not, was the only way to come through that. We need to get to the root of habitual sins and dig them out. Owning our sin is the gateway to joy. Be quick to own our sin repent to both God and others. And like I said, own our habitual sin. Get help. Get accountability. Whether it's gossip or anger or lust, whatever it is. Now I want to circle back around to the, to the Romans 9 through 20. These are six quotes from the Old Testament. Right? We just walked through how each of them says, no one is righteous. But if we were to go to each of those texts, most of them are in Psalms, one's in Isaiah, and we look at them, somewhere in these, in these passages, we actually see a parallel between the unrighteous and the righteous. And so we may ask a question, how is this saying all are unrighteous, but then we look at these passages and there's righteous people in there? How does this make sense? 
we have to understand where righteousness comes from. That Paul can reflect on these passages and say, no one is righteous because the only righteousness comes from God down to me. This is where Advent comes in. To all of our sin issues, Jesus is the answer. Advent is our hope. Right? We're celebrating Christmas, Jesus coming. That being broken in sin, he chose to come to be a human. He went through puberty. That's awkward. God chose to do that. He grew up. He died on a cross to take on every single one of my sins. Right? And I said he frees us from the power of sin. And with the second part of Advent, we look to Jesus coming back. And when he comes at that time, he's going to remove the presence of sin as well. We no longer have to live in the presence of sin. We are freed to choose what is right. Salvation only comes from Jesus. We don't bring anything. My morality, my good works don't earn me anything before God. It is one directional from God to me. So as we close, how will God's people be known? Not by a bumper sticker or your Facebook page or cool, cheesy Christian t-shirts or WWJD bracelet. And I definitely hope it's not by the things we've read of judging others and being hypocrites that never live it out. No, we are to be known by a changed heart and life that is marked by love and grace and following whatever God asks of us. We are sinners, all are sinners, none righteous. But as we're going to see over the next weeks as Advent unfolds, there's this glorious term that we are sinners, but God. But God came to save us. He came as a baby so that we might know him and be changed to honor and desire what is right. I want to read this quote um, from John Piper. Now here is the warning in the gospel invitation. Let us be careful. Oh, so watchful and careful. All of us lovers of the Bible, beware lest we rest in the word and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent and guide the blind and correct the foolish and teach the immature, but do not teach ourselves. Beware lest the word become a formal thing and an external thing. If it does not break us, if it does not humble us, if it does not lead us to a sweet, childlike trust in free grace. In other words, if it does not lead us to the gospel of justification by grace through faith in Christ, then we are not yet taught by the word of God and are not fit to teach others. Woe to me and other teachers and preachers, lovers of the book who have in the word of God the embodiment of knowledge and truth, but only know the letter of the law and not the spirit who only know the form of righteousness and not the righteousness that comes by faith. Oh, that everyone in this room would be taught, even now, by the Spirit, the difference between establishing our own righteousness and receiving the righteousness as a gift through faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your patience, for your kindness. Lord, I pray that you will help us be quick to repent, quick to hear the Holy Spirit convict us, that we might find our righteousness in you, 
and not what we do. That we would glorify you and proclaim your glory among all the people. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.